Welcome to the show. We welcome on Kevin Sweeney from CBBCentral.com to help us do another edition of an A10 preview, as well as get to the news of the week regarding the Dayton Flyers. I'm talking about the Dwayne Cohill injury, the first four announcement that will keep the event in Dayton for the foreseeable future, as well as some of the scheduling news that we have on our docket, mainly the Dayton game in South Dakota against Wichita State on November 25th to open things up for the 2021 season. Let's get right to it. Let's go! This is Talking Out Loud, the number one podcast in the Atlantic 10 and among Dayton Flyers basketball fans everywhere. The only podcast on the internet consistently reminding you to wear red and be loud. Welcome back. It is fantastic to have you. This is Talking Out Loud, Episode 3. We are recording live today on October 14th, coming to you live with our regularly scheduled programming on Thursday, October 15th. I'm joined first and foremost tonight by my esteemed co-host, Drew. Drew, say hi to the people. Hello, people. How's it going? How are you fellas doing? Oh, we're doing great. And he says, fellas, because we have a special guest on tonight to further our previews of the season. One wasn't enough with the three-man weave. If you missed that episode, go back into the archives of Talking Out Loud and check it out. We did a great uh, season preview with the three-man weave last week. But this week, we are joined by the publisher, owner, producer, editor of CBB Central. Of course, it stands for college basketball. CBBCentral.com. I'm talking about Kevin Sweeney. He joins us today to make a threesome podcast kevin what's going on today buddy how is uh the preseason college basketball season treating you preseason's treating me well you know wake up and there's there's officially practice so that's a that's a good start to the morning and you know we just feels like we're creeping closer i spent uh you know a lot of time in july and august saying i really shouldn't start you know previewing teams and conferences because you know it just felt too uncertain and at this point, kind of had to get going. And so it's very exciting that it seems like we're going to get some action on the court and, uh, you know, pleased for everyone involved and certainly excited for all of us basketball fans. It'll get a really heck of a few months watching hoops. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And to that same point, this morning I sent Drew a, um, a message in our group chat and I said, hey, man, Thursday episode, we got to push it out. What are we going to talk about? I said, we haven't got any scheduling news. I was like, nothing's really happened with the team. And Drew, what were you thinking when I sent you that text earlier this morning? Well, I just brought up hypothetical matchups for the tournament, not even like <laughs> knowing that the schedule was going to get released today. So Drew Stadamus over here just was like, yeah, let's just put this energy into the world. So I said that, and then about an hour later, it got released about who Dayton is playing, and we I'm sure we'll get more into that as we move forward. We will. We will. So right after I had sent that text message, a number of things happened, and we're going to cover them all on the show today. And instead of dedicating an entire segment to the A10 preview with Kevin, I felt like he could just join us along this ride. Um, first, we'll, we'll tackle some good news. So uh, the NCAA announced today their tournament site's um, through 2023, 2024, I believe, or 2023, uh, all the sites came out today. And then the UD Arena, the UD Arena, I said, uh, got extended for the first four games until 2026. So for those of you keeping track at home, UD has had the play-in game ever since 2001. If you remember uh, when the field was expanded to 65 
they first had that playing game at UD in 2001 until 2010. And then UD, of course, took the first four starting in 2011, and they will have that at least until 2026. Guys, I, I think it's not really worth going into a lot of detail, but I think it goes without saying right now that the first four has become inherently Dayton's event. Kevin, from your outside perspective, um, I don't know if you've actually been to the first four, but you know, as someone who covers college basketball religiously day to day, how do you view the first four? Yeah, I have not been to UD Arena, hoping to get there soon. Yeah, um, we'll write that shit on the bucket list. Um, but yes, uh, I, I think the first four, as you said, has become very distinctly Dayton. I think the challenge with an event like that is always, you know, there just isn't a lot of buzz behind it, right? The two games are are pretty much don't matter except to people who are the fans of the schools. Two of the, the other two games are, you know, essentially you're, 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 you're heating up to be watching basketball 12 hours a day for the next four days. So it, it's inherently challenging to drive interest in those, you know, nine o'clock tip-off uh, games between two bubble teams that usually te- people didn't really want in the field. So the fact that the community in Dayton has supported it so well, I think has given the event a big lift because I've never watched those games and said, this doesn't feel like the NCAA tournament. And I think that's the biggest, biggest push that this event needs to remain successful. Uh, so I think from that perspective, it's been a big win there. Uh, I think it's important to keep, at least for the time being, just because, you know, there, there hasn't, it's, it's not, it's not as though the bubble has felt so weak that you're just grasping at straws trying to fill spots. And I think um, this is a good sign that the, uh, the tournament is going to stay in a similar shape and format for the, uh, for the coming years. Yeah. And I've always kind of thought from, you know, from my perspective, the insider's perspective is like Dayton is one of the best college basketball markets in the country. Like there's, you know, and that's not just me being a homer. That is a thing you can actually look up with the stats to prove it. Yeah. Like we got numbers to back this up, but Dayton's one of the best college basketball markets year in and year out, which shouldn't surprise anybody who listens to the show regularly. But from the NCAA's point of view, they want to go to a market that is passionate about college basketball, where local like local citizens will go and attend the games to drive up the revenue. You're not just relying on people traveling from wherever you know these schools are because they come from all over the country. You know, you can get UCLA, you can get Texas Tech, you can get a lot of these, you know, middling power five schools where, yeah, they'll they'll travel. But you also need a little bit of that local revenue to kind of bolster your numbers and make it a big deal. So I think Dayton is the perfect kind of area with the perfect kind of arena to host that kind of thing where it's, as we said, it's distinctly Dayton's thing. And I think they've done a very good job of running it. And I think they're only going to get better as their contract has now been renewed. Yeah, absolutely. And this came up uh, most recently because the initial contract was set to expire in 2021. They had a 10 year agreement. Um, And instead of doing another 10 year agreement, they started to piece it out, you know, do little by little. However, when the first 10 year agreement was coming up uh, for renewal, I remember that you know, that was when they put together uh, the first four hoopla committee. That was when the university said, you know, we're all in on the first four. Obviously, the arena got renovated. So now it has like a more big time feel. Um, and, and I will say this. Initially, UD wanted to do the facelift to the arena for the for the one main. I mean, there's a lot of purposes to do a facelift, obviously. But the renovations were intended to get UD more tournament games. Unfortunately, what we've seen in the last few years now is that the NCAA tournament wants to go into NBA arenas for those first and second weekends, frankly, because they have the option to and NBA arenas are typically going to be a little bit better. But when you think about the tournament moving forward, Dayton has, again, gotten ahead of the curve, just like they did in building their arena initially in the 60s. They've gotten ahead of the curve in placing themselves in the perfect position for the NCAA tournament because when you look around the region, I mean, think about it. The, the tournament can go to Cleveland and play in the Cavs arena. You can go to Nationwide, play in the Blue Jackets arena. Uh, you could even go down to Cincinnati, I suppose. Uh, then you can go to Indianapolis. You can go to Memphis. There's an arena there. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different options for that first and second weekend. Um, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to give those games to UD. I will point out that while UD got the first four up to 2026, they have not gotten any other first and second round games, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. So it could be argued that they maybe, 
you know, tackled their purpose with the, the arena renovation. But by and large, um, you know, this is doing what Dayton thought it was going to do. You know, the first four is inherently their event, like you guys said, and now it's really not in danger of, of leaving Dayton, Ohio anytime soon. So with that, I have some trivia time for you guys nice and early. Uh, play the music. Got some new music for trivia time. Here we are. So my trivia time tonight for you guys, it has two answers, which is exactly why I wanted to bring it up to the two of you. Since Dayton Arena, U- University of Dayton Arena is now and has been for quite some time the uh, number one host of NCAA tournament games, my question to you guys, what is number two and number three arenas on that list? Kevin, you can go first. Jeez, this is very difficult. Trivia um, time is always difficult. A, they've hosted a ton in like the Anaheim LA region. So either Staples or whatever that Anaheim Ducks arena is. That is in the top 10, but incorrect. Drew, do you have a guess for us? Indianapolis is coming to mind. I know they've hosted a crap ton. I feel like they... Unfortunately, they've changed their arenas. That They, they would yeah. be. You're right. That's, and that, right. Was the, that was the issue. Um, Your Midwest is correct, though. I'm, okay, so I'm going to say the United Center. Uh, it's not St. Louis. Um, United Center and wherever the Bucks play. I don't know. Vicer <laughs> Forum. Vicer Forum being two years old did not make the list. No. Uh, the Bradley Center might have been up there. Um, I didn't go too deep down the list, but all answers incorrect. I'm going to shout out to David Jablonski for this piece of trivia that he put in the Dayton Daily News today. And I was all over the Dayton Daily News uh, today because he was kind enough to publish an article uh, with an interview that I did with him. However, I digress on trivia. The answer, number two. Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City, which is now a retired arena for college basketball since they built the Sprint Center. And number three was the Huntsman Center in Salt Lake City, which belongs to the Utah Utes. That's your trivia segment for today, boys. I, I bet you guys wouldn't have got those. No, I, mean, I, those, I, I threw it out. There. None of those answers I was hoping city. entered the realm of possibility. <laughs> I was hoping the cities might have got you guys. I don't know, man. I was, I was hoping, you know, fine. Okay. Next piece of, of, uh, I guess, new development, right, Drew? This morning, we were clamoring for news, and sure enough, what happened, Drew? Tell the people. A key member of our team got injured. Yeah, a key member of our team did get injured. Um, Right around 2 o'clock Central today, I'm in Chicago, 2 o'clock Central, uh, Dayton uh, UD officially announced that Dwayne Cohill is going to be out for the season with an ACL tear. Um, This happened earlier this week in practice, I was told, and they were waiting, um, you know, again, hearsay, waiting for a doctor's confirmation, but Dwayne Cohill is indeed going to be out for the season. Um, You know, Drew, how do you see this affecting the team, Um, you know, for for the whole season? I mean, he's not coming back at all. So how how do you see this playing out? It, It hurts a lot. Because I think the one area where I think we were going to be lacking coming into this year was perimeter defense. Uh, you know, Rodney's a good defender, and obviously Dwayne's a really good defender. Jalen's a, a good team defender, not necessarily a lockdown one-on-one. And Ibby, you know, he's a you know he's got length, so that plays to his advantage. But it really does change things, and it's going to open up some opportunities for these young guys, though that are coming in, you know, this is, this is probably 20 to 25 minutes of playing time on an average night, you know, opened up because of this injury. So it's an opportunity for some of the guys who may not have had as much hype or being talked about as much to really step up and play a key role. And just a quick question, Dwayne would be eligible for the medical red shirt, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. he's got two more years left still. So I guess like in a way, like obviously it sucks that we're not going to have them, but you know, at least it's not an, an entire year of eligibility killed. At least, you know, we can put them on the red shirt and we've got them for two more years. But uh, so other than that, just some opportunities for some young guys. And I think they're going to have to take those opportunities by the horns. Kevin, we can kind of tie this into your a 10 preview that we're, we're getting to here. I promise listeners we're getting to it. Um, but when you looked at the Dayton Flyers roster, how much did the uncertainties of what they have coming back kind of jade your view of how high the ceiling is? I think just generally, and I can tie this to the Cohill injury, this team was already driven by you know pace and space, playing four and five out. And I think you know when you're losing Toppin, 
it becomes very appealing to be able to play even smaller with four guards on the floor at once around one big, just because there's so much uncertainty as to what you're going to get from, you know, some of these younger guys. And then obviously Chase Johnson and Shemanga aren't, aren't, haven't proven themselves yet. Like I, I think there was, there was a scenario in my head where, where you could play literally just four guards and play Crutcher, Chapman, Watson, and Cohill all together on the floor at once. And yeah, it's small, but like, I think you can do it. And so what this does is it forces now at least one freshman into the, you know, very regular rotation in the backcourt. Um, just because either just because you're going to need a fourth guard to play. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think that that impacts things. I think Cohill was such an interesting kind of upside play for this team because they just haven't needed him to score, particularly last year. And so, you know, you mentioned the great defensive instincts that he brought, but, you know, he was a guy that that really lifted the upside for this group as well, because I thought there was an opportunity for him to step his game up in that regard. And so obviously losing him is big and uh, really, really opens the door uh, for some of these younger guards to step in as well as to, to play some some bigger lineups with more, you know, maybe more traditional four and five. Yeah, you, you guys said it all. Um, it, it just puts you know more emphasis on the younger guys to step up and eat up those minutes. Like Drew said, you're talking 25, 20, 25 minutes a night that need to be accounted for now on uh, on the backcourt side. Where you know going into this year, when you wrote the preview for Dayton, you said, well, uh, their backcourt's all sewed up. You know the guys that are coming in. You know the guys that are going to contribute. Don't ask you know very much of the freshmen. And, and now that situation has changed a little bit. Um, not exactly the same as if Crutcher went down, obviously, but still, like you said, he's going to be um, a presence to replace on the defensive side of the ball. So uh, I don't want to belabor that point too much. Obviously, it's a tough break for Dwayne. Uh, shout out to him. I- I've loved Dwayne since he since he put on a Dayton uniform um, and even since he committed because he's been all about UD since day one. Drew, I think it's fair to say he's a bit of a fan favorite coming off the bench, right? Oh, yeah. I, I think you-, you talk you ask Dayton fans around the arena about Dwayne. Co- the one thing about Dwayne Cohill that I've always loved is that he always plays hard. I've never once seen him step on the floor and, you know, not hustle for a rebound or not try and get back on. Now, what, has he been in bad positions? Has he made bad plays? Sure. But I would rather have you, you know, this is the old coach adage, but I'd rather have him make a mistake going 100% as opposed to not wanting to make a mistake going 80. Like, yeah. And he I, he embodies that. He, he plays hard every time he steps on the floor. I, he's definitely a fan favorite. And again, like, he came in highly touted as a scorer coming into UD and I feel like he's done a good job of kind of absorbing into the program and not having to worry about like, you know, I was very highly touted coming in. I need to put up, you know, 16 points, 17 points a game. As soon as I step on campus, he's never thought that way. So I think that's a testament to his character and how much, like how much of a team player and a great teammate that I'm sure he is. So I'm sure the guys are just as bummed as he is, but you know, that's the nature of the business, man. You got to move on, move forward and you know, next man up. Indeed, indeed. Next man up because the first game of the season is looming. Um, It's going to be 42 days from the day of this recording, 41 days from the day of this episode release. I know that because I've been keeping the countdown on Twitter, but uh, we finally have some scheduling news. It took us until almost mid-October to get us some scheduling news, and we have it. This morning, uh, we got the announcement of a full tournament bracket for the Bad Boy Mowers Crossover Classic, which was the battle for Atlantis. It is taking place in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, the Wednesday of Thanksgiving, November 25th, then the 26th, and the final game championship will be on Friday, November 27th. Uh, Kevin, you cover this process, I feel like, pretty closely in the offseason as to like what schools are in tournaments, what schools aren't in, you know, invited to certain things, and um, what has your outside view been of this off season and like how teams are trying to get into these tournaments? There's been teams that have backed out like Dayton and then found themselves in better tournaments. I mean, it's fair to say it's just been complete anarchy, right? Yeah. And I think in some ways it would have been easier if everyone just said all contracts are void and just started Start from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. is essentially what would happen was, Everyone built normal non-conference schedules, and they essentially had to because of there was uncertainty as to what was going to happen. 
But you essentially had this pencil-written non-conference schedule, but especially these big events have been locked in for a year, year and a half, even two years in the cases of something like uh, Maui, which really locks in early. So um, it's just it was just really challenging, I think, once we officially had a new date, then everyone was like, well, I need to reassess my options. And it becomes very complex because you have to make sure if you have a rivalry game, you want to make sure that gets done or you wind up with backlash from the fans. You want to stay in your tournament, but then if teams drop out of your tournament, you might say, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, there's travel restriction. That was a particularly a problem uh, for the teams in the Northeast, like New York and uh, New Jersey have really strict quarantine rules. So pretty much if they were in an event that was not in the Northeast, they were pretty much screwed. So all of those things led to a, I would describe a two to three week Armageddon where everyone was just slashing dates from their schedule. Um, and at the same time, you're getting a phone call every single day from a different event operator who's trying to start up their own thing. There's the guy in Houston trying to set up the bubble there. There's the Vegas bubble, the Indianapolis bubble. You got ESPN setting things up in Orlando. Yep. You know, you've got the people in Sioux Falls trying to get, get stuff done. So it's like everyone was making a million calls and no one knew how to lock everything in. And it was just an incredibly stressful, stressful stretch for all these assistant coaches in charge of scheduling. And so I think at this point, we've gotten to a point where teams have a pretty good idea of where they're going. Maybe contracts aren't signed yet, but they understand, okay, these are the events I'm heading towards. But um, I I almost think the attempt to clutch to that old non-conference schedule made things more challenging than it needed to be. Yeah. And, you know, what I've heard, you know, just in our own uh, inside our own doors in Dayton is just that the 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 tournaments, um, you know, obviously the the multi-game tournaments, those have kind of been a situation where if you're happy with the field that you're in, you just kind of play by whatever the event organizers are going to do. But then to your point, you have a lot of guys that are trying to make new events because they've seen of um they've seen basketball events like the TBT be successful. And they're like, okay, well, if these guys can just start an event from scratch, we could probably get eight college basketball teams in one location for three days. Right. So there's a lot of, why don't I say, um, advantageous behavior from capitalists out there right now, uh, to, try and get teams into their events. Now, UD is extremely fortunate. As I mentioned on the last show, uh, they went from a very so-so field in the Myrtle Beach tournament, dropped out, and then landed in a very good tournament bracket uh, in the Bad Boy Mowers crossover classic uh, in South Dakota, taking the place of Duke. I'm just going to go down the list of the teams that are in this, uh, ending with UD's game. First game, you have West Virginia and Texas A&M. You have Ohio State and Memphis after that. Then it's Creighton and Utah, Dayton and Wichita State. All great programs. No matter what, Dayton is going to get three good games out of that. Um, So thankfully, that part's taken care of, right? Now, on the flip side of things, what I've been told is that the buy games and the rest of the schedule coming together is is basically a, a big game of chicken because... Nobody knows what the going rate is for buy games. And there's all these questions about arena capacity. So the normal like configuring of the schedule that our athletic department does, and, and rest assured, they put a lot of time into making sure we're going to get the right opponents. All of that is completely up in the air. And now you're getting into a point where you're like, okay, well, I want to get these games scheduled. But with the financial realities that universities are facing, it's like, well, I don't want to give up more money than I actually have to to get this game on the books. And in turn, like you said, what we've ended up with is no one really knowing where to go from here. And you get a lot of programs with reluctance to take that first step. Um, With that said, Drew, we got to be thrilled as a UD fan when you look at this bracket in South Dakota, right? Yeah, when it came out that we got out of the Myrtle Beach tournament and into this one, I rem- it's the biggest is it the biggest scheduling win I've ever seen UD make? Maybe. I think so. I think I, so, yeah. In terms of like being adaptive to your situation and what's going on and being able to take advantage of a bad situation that, you know, we are all currently in. There's some to be said and I give full kudos and credit to the athletic department of getting this done, letting us slip right in the back door into a really, really good field, a field that I'm probably going to watch every game. Absolutely. I'm probably going to watch every single game on this list. There's good matchups. You just listed them all. Uh, A shame that Ohio state and Dayton don't play each other unless we either win two or lose two, 
or, you know, there's other avenues that'll take to get there, but it's a bit of a bummer. We can get Ohio state if we both won our first game per se, but that's neither here nor there, but just being in a field, a strength of field like this with programs that you recognize, there's no landmines laying around. It's not like, Oh, we need to beat Wichita state or else we're going to run into the Citadel in the second game. You know, there's none of that, (laughs) you know, you, you lose game one. It's like, all right, well you got a date with Utah or Creighton. It's, and it's going to be a really, really good test for our team. And I like that it's early, you know, cause, and I hopefully, you know, we'll talk about it more when we get to it, but people don't overreact if we, you know, if we drop two, you can't overreact to it because it's, you know, two pretty solid teams. Now, do I expect us to win a game or two? Yes. And Wichita state being the first game, I've got my eye on that. You know, it's a a revenge game for a team that nobody plays for anymore, but I remember it. So it's a revenge game to me. Um, I will say for those listeners out there that might not be aware, Wichita state is going through a bit of a transition year. Um, I expect Dayton to win that game and I think they will be favored whenever push comes to shove. However, uh, Creighton is in the preseason top 10 for most of the national writers. So that will be a very, very tough test, uh, for Dayton out of the gate on the, you know, if all those prognosticators, uh, you know, got their predictions correct. So that leads us to the meat and the bones of the program tonight, gentlemen, which is, uh, our second edition of the a 10 preview. We started off with the three man weave last week. Uh, Maddie Cox was uh, kind enough to join me because he had written, in a far too in-depth A-10 preview. And so Kevin Sweeney came on today from cbbcentral.com because he did the exact same thing. Wrote an A-10 preview uh, that is posted on October 15th to his website. So, Kevin, let's back up before we get into the A-10. You've had your website for a number of years now. Um, From Albany, student at Northwestern. How did you get yourself into this esteemed calling of writing about college basketball? Yeah, man, it wasn't it wasn't sexy or anything. You know, it was literally I was I was a junior it's in high school. It's always sexy, Kevin. It's always I sexy. Loved, I absolutely loved uh, college basketball. I grew up, like you said, in Albany, and Albany was a place that had had great mid-major basketball. So they, had, you know, U Albany uh, won, made it to the NCAA tournament two years in a row, in like '06 and '07. Uh, nearly won as a 16 seed. Then yeah, Siena, who I grew up around. Um, Siena made the NCAA tournament three years in a row, won an NCAA tournament game in Dayton against Ohio State, uh, won an NCAA tournament against Vanderbilt as well. Um, they had some really amazing teams, Fran McCaffrey on, at the helm, and now he's at Iowa. Uh, and then UAlbany and three-peated again. So I just kind of grew up, grew up around mid-major hoops, kind of loved it. And, uh, you know, it was essentially it was my junior year of high school. I was sitting there going, I've got to apply to colleges. I want to write about sports, and I need to prove that I actually did something while I was in high school about it. So – Literally on a Saturday morning, I built a WordPress site. It was pretty ugly. I wrote a blog about a Monmouth Rider game from the previous night. It's a pretty terrible blog. Uh, and <laughs> they just, always are. Yes, exactly. But it but it just built from there, and uh, it, it took a little while to to take footing. And uh, but once once it took me, I think nine months to get a hundred Twitter followers. But then then in three months, I gained another thousand off of that one hundred. Then another thousand on a month after that. Headed to Northwestern with 2,200, uh, up to 4,500 by the end of my first year, and then it's you know kind of gone from there. So uh, it's been unbelievable. You know, connecting me with a ton of people, uh, whether that's coaches, media members, you know, just writers who are fun to be around. You know, independent guys like you, and uh, so it's been quite a ride. And so it's been uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Yeah, I've I've kind of watched it. I feel like from uh, from the sidelines a little bit because I feel like me and you connected way back when. It's been probably you know three or four years now um, that we've been going back and forth about college hoops. I did want to bring my listeners up to speed. You got me in hot water one time, and I don't know if you remember this, but this was one of my favorite stories between me and you on Twitter. You know, I always say that on Twitter, and Drew can attest. There is a certain ceiling to where my tweets never really break through that ceiling. And I'm talking about like college basketball, Twitter, and then, you know, more specifically like the Dayton, Ohio kind of bubble, right? Well, I was sitting around one night late and late night games on CBS Sports generally are Mountain West, right? And so there's not a lot of people on Twitter. So if you tweet anything about the games, you know, it's probably going to get picked up by a couple of people. Well, Sure enough, Kevin and I were two of the people watching Nevada. They were beating the crap out of somebody. It was one of the years that Nevada was very good. And they kind of ran a few plays at the end to run up the score. 
And I made a comment about, man, that was kind of a Bush League move by Nevada to run up the score. For the record, I have no problem with any team running up the score at the end of the game. Just the nature in which they did it, I felt needed to be called out. I was like, man, they really ran up the score. So Kevin retweeted, and he has enough followers that I got picked up by Nebraska, or sorry, Nevada basketball Twitter. And that was a bad night for me, Kevin. They really went in. Um, you get a lot of vitriol like that from from fans and, and like different teams of, of loyal followings, right? Yeah, I certainly do. And I, I I didn't remember that story until you mentioned it. I think it was <laughs> Nevada fans really jumped on me early. They were one of the first uh, first fan bases to love me uh, because I was big on the Muss era before. It really I was got- like, how could you do this to me, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> But no, the, the vitriol is fun. I think the biggest one I always got heat for was I got a bunch of Arizona fan hate when I would tweet stuff because I had a I had a really good source, um, unbelievably honestly, about the whole like FBI investigation and trial and stuff like that. Who you know could literally share stuff with me that you know was was truly not public in a, in a yeah. way that you know like like you know Pete Thamel was getting it, Dan Watson was getting it, and I was getting it right. Like so, yeah. It was, it was pretty remarkable. I didn't, I didn't use a ton of it, but it allowed me to make some kind of informed speculation that there was literally no way Sean Miller would survive this stuff. And so I would say this stuff and they would just, <laughs> they would just brutally come at me. And I'm sitting there going, I mean, I, I have no reason. I'm not wrong. Like you, you can, you can get mad at me, but I'm not wrong. And Jason Shear, who's the like rivals publisher and big, like Sean Miller, like, um, you know, he, he, him and Sean Miller are close. You know, Sean, yeah. Sean, Sean, t- he takes care of Sean. And he would set the uh, set the dogs on me a couple times, but yeah, taking <laughs> taking my share of heat in the in the days. I think I think the funniest comment in that one was someone said someone someone made a comment that my teeth were too yellow in my profile picture. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> always what they go for. They always go for the profile picture. It's amazing. Always. It's like oh, you couldn't bring up anything about what I'm saying here, but you had to go immediately. To, that's when you know you already won. When people <laughs> resort to the whole like, well, look at you and your profile picture. It's like, yeah, I see it. I made it. I made it. My profile wow. picture. I look so. in the mirror every day. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, that, that that one was really funny. I think that guy's still blocked on my feed. But yeah, I, yeah, taking some heat. I don't think it's been anything I couldn't handle. An Arkansas fan once once asked if I was dropped as a child. That was funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, and hey, funny's funny. Territory. If, I mean, if you haven't gotten death threats on Twitter, you're really yeah, not. I've been on popular. Twitter. That's what I'm saying. Like you haven't really lived. Um, <laughs> was there a moment when you were making your site kind of coming up, um, you know, getting more followers where you said to yourself, Hey, you know what? I think I can do this. I think I'm pretty good at this. Did you have like a watershed moment as you were growing the site? Man, that's tough. I think so. So the song, I, I had 2000 followers. Or so it was the summer after my freshman year and I was sitting there. I was, a, I was working, I was working in like a political polling call center. And I, I got a scoop from a, an assistant coach that this uh, really talented Juco recruit was not going to wind up at Western Kentucky. And I tweeted it out and then Jeff Goodman broke it, you know, 30 minutes later and someone, you know, a bunch of people start tagging Goodman, like, Oh, go, you know, at CB central had it first. And then Jeff hit me with the follow. And I, at that point I was like, all right, I made it. That's all I need to do. I'm done. Like yeah. <laughs> be in a Twitter hall of fame. Like we did it. Uh, and I think I, I think that I think things like that where you know to to, to have you know Goodman, Rostein, Borzello, Doster, uh, et cetera, et cetera, they all follow me on Twitter, and like to me that was the coolest thing in the world, and it yeah. still is. So I think that would be really my uh, my made it moment more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I uh, I told somebody last week they said you know what uh, what was the greatest moment of your podcast was it when you you know you talked to Scott Van Pelt and I said no it was when John Rostein followed me on Twitter I said that's when I really knew I made it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing how many I mean you're dead on since the the rat race for scoops is just so hot. It's amazing how many guys will start to follow you if they think you have an inside track on literally anything. Um, and, and I'll give you a good example. This past summer, I had uh, I had a couple of really good sources that came to me and they said, hey, uh, Scoochie's younger brother is going to commit. And then um, I had somebody a, a month earlier that was like, hey, um, Crutcher's not going to say this for a while, but like he's coming back like he's not leaving school. And, you know, I don't I don't really get anything out of breaking scoops, but I kind of just put some things tongue in cheek like, hey, we're about to get a big commitment this weekend. I never want to steal a kid's thunder. So I kind of said it like that. And same thing with Crutcher. I was like, oh, Crutcher's going to have an announcement, you know, whatever. It's official. It's official, but nothing to worry about. Right. 
and that's when I started to get a couple of more people in college basketball Twitter that would follow me because they're like, oh, what if this guy has some scoops about Dayton? I've never you know, been scoop guy. Drew can tell you we're not we're not scoop guys nope. now. But, you know, that's kind of how it goes. I mean, it, it's just it's a hot race to break news and there's only a few guys that do it. So for them to keep doing it well and keep doing it at a high level, they kind of have to source from, from, I guess, guys like us. I mean, you're a little bit more national than I am. I'm kind of niche, but, um, so I, I've kind of wasted time before we actually got to an a 10 preview, but you know, things needed to be flushed out before we got here. Right. You had, uh, I read through, read through the a 10 preview before it hit the print. Um, that's what you're allotted as a show host. Like I am. I didn't have a lot of things that I disagreed with. Um, so let's start here, Kevin, because I like to separate the relevant from the uh, the irrelevant. Um, the teams that can make the tournament out of the A-10, who do you have? The teams that are possible that they can make the tournament. Man, that's so So I think Richmond and St. Louis are pencil them in top 35-ish teams in the preseason. They'll be in the field of every yeah. bracketologist preseason. Honestly, after that, I think... Three through five in my preview, I'm like fairly confident could make a push. That's Dayton, St. Bonaventure, and Rhode Island. But you could really move it down to like the top eight where like there's an outside track where Duquesne or UMass or VCU has a really good year. Like I don't think that's unbelievable that they could wind up as the top 50-ish teams if everything broke right. Um, so I think that would be how I'd break down the hierarchy. Uh, I think three bids is realistic as a whole for the league. You know, one beyond the... Uh, Richmond St. Louis duo. Uh, but I think there's probably eight that could find their way to it if they really, uh, you know, really had some things break right. Now, Kevin, um, most important question of the A10 preview Do you know what the golden rule is? Number one golden rule, rule of making an A10 preview? I don't think I know it exactly, but I'm sure I would know it if you told me it. Drew, can you tell them the golden rule of making an A10 preview? Well, so I do the the A10 roundup during the regular season, Kevin, and I have one rule of thumb is that Fordham is always last. Fordham yeah. is always last. Fordham <laughs> is always last. We had a long run. It was a it was a valiant effort from St. Joe's last year to really kind of like you know fight back and forth with them for that for the seller. But yep, it's still Fordham, everybody. And spoiler alert for the article. I don't want to step on it too much, but. Fordham's at the bottom, so he, he yeah. was correct. Yeah, Joe's forced the issue last year, but uh, you start with Fordham at the bottom, and then you just go from there. You did that, um, and going down, we're not going to co- cover the bottom five. We never do on this show because I stayed true to my mantra. We only cover what Dayton fans care about, and you should not care about the bottom five. Kevin's bottom five coming down, Davidson, Mason, St. Joe's, LaSalle, and then Fordham. I think Davidson probably has the best chance to climb out of that cellar, wouldn't you say? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think Davidson and GW are very tight, eight, uh, 9 and 10 in my rankings. Yeah, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that I've said this. Richmond's a front runner. I think St. Louis is right behind them. I think some homers would put Dayton in front of them. I just don't see that on paper right now. It's probably, you know, it might end up being true down the road. Um, and you have Dayton at three and you have Bonas uh, at number four. Outside of that top four, if you had to stake your claim on one team going to the tournament outside of that top four, who do you have? Oh, geez. Um, I, think... I only ask the tough questions on this podcast. Okay, that's what I we know. do. I, know. I, th- I think I would say vcu just from the like program talent perspective i think one of the things that gets forgotten about in in, when when people are building out these previews is like it's there's only so low that vcu can go because they're recruiting at such a high level uh and it wouldn't take a ton for a bunch of like former top 250 recruits to put it all together around a really good point guard in bones and i think to me like the upside, the, the the floor and ceiling are the most wide with VCU in this conference, other than maybe UMass, who has like the you know intriguing talent and the coaching questions. I think VCU and UMass are definitely the two as high two highest variance teams in the conference. I would say VCU outside of the uh, the top tier has the uh, the best chance of cracking the dance. So I, I kind of want to take a shot at stab at this answer. Mine's UMass because yeah. I think. Trey Mitchell is going to win player of the year. And I, it's going to be predicated on the fact that, and this is going to be my hot take coming into the season. I think UMass is going to finish top four, top four. Yeah. 
Your state. I, uh, I need. I, I really need it. breaking news music. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, something like that. So that's that's the bold. That's my bold prediction of the year because I think between Trey Mitchell and TJ Weeks, I think they make a big leap. And I think I've always liked McCall as a coach, and I think this is the year he finally gets it going in the right direction. So I'm not like saying it's a stone cold lock to happen, but a, a top four UMass with Trey Mitchell playing well enough to win Player of the Year does not shock me at all. Kevin, you said even in your preview that they are the team in the A10 that you wanted to watch the most, right? Like you see, you find them as most intriguing. Yeah, I do. I think it's interesting because I think they can upgrade a point guard. Uh, like people are going to talk about losing Sean East, but East was really, really volatile. And Noah Fernandez is a stud. Like this kid was awesome in AAU ball. He didn't crack the rotation a ton for Greg Marshall as a freshman at Wichita, but he probably should have went to UMass to begin with. Uh, and I think he will. He would have had a Sean East or better type season as a freshman. I think he'll be an upgraded point guard. Weeks was really good. Javon Garcia, their freshman guard, is is terrific. He's going to be a guy that uh, you know can play at both ends, really, really defend, and also get to the basket. Like. Again, I think it's tough to win in this league when all your good players are freshmen and sophomores, but they have the nucleus that makes them really, really intriguing. Staying on topic of, you know, right around that range of teams, you know, UMass, VCU, Duquesne, uh, G-Dub, I've obviously said that UMass is the team that I think is going to elevate themselves. If you had to pick a candidate from the teams that I just named, and we'll throw Rhode Island in there as well, who's someone that you think could you know, be a contender in there, but ultimately will fall short and ultimately be disappointed. Man, that's that's a tough question. I think again, we only asked the Rhode tough Island, ones I here. Think, yeah, I know. <laughs> but Rhode Island to me is a team that gives me some scary vibes. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that they got those waivers. Like that changes the game by getting Jalen Carey in there, getting in uh, Malik Martin, and the Mitchell twins obviously give him a front court that's impactful, but. Whenever you have a situation where a bunch of guys leave and there's no huge explanation for why, there's reason for alarm, right? Yeah, like, in yeah. which I mean, Wichita State's a very severe example of this, where now there's allegations of a coach punching players. But like, th- there generally is not a good culture going on when a guy like Toppin, who's going to be a star for you this next year, leaves. When a guy like Tyrese Martin leaves right like that's not a good sign at the a10 level you shouldn't be losing up transfers like that but they've also lost guys you know they lose uh dana tate out of the program mid-year um they've lost um the, who, they, they had this big kid uh, i'm blanking on his a mariel mating who went to juco like they've lost a ton of guys in the last couple of years and that is concerning enough for me to have some pause about whether david cox is the guy like they still have the talent fats is there you know, they've, they've got this, you know, eight-man rotation that should be pretty intriguing. They've ended up tournament, I think, caliber talent. Um, but I think culture-wise, there might be some question marks there. And when you're talking about a league that will not be forgiving in the middle, uh, it could be easy to see them drop. Here's my question to you, Kevin, because I think that you have you've gotten a pretty good following of, of this process. But since we're going down to 27 games, do you feel like – the criteria for how teams are placed in the tournament will change? Or do you feel like maybe the conference season will hold a little bit more impact because there's less games? I think the answer to that question will somewhat depend on what conference you play in. Um, so for instance, in, in the big 10 there, everyone's going to come in with a million big 10 teams in the tournament. And it's going to be hard to buck that, because there just won't be a lot of evidence that these teams aren't very good. Like, quite quite frankly, by, by limiting the number of non-conference data points, you're limiting the opportunity to say, okay, maybe the Big Ten isn't as good as we saw, thought in the preseason. Mm-hmm. The A-10, honestly, like, someone like Richmond or St. Louis is going to come in and people are going to expect them to be tournament caliber. And those types of things matter, I think, moving forward. Because they impact the way the teams are ranked and perceived throughout the entire season. So Richmond goes to the non-conference. They win all the games they're supposed to. They lose all the games they're supposed to. Even if they haven't looked remotely like a top 25 team, they'll probably still be in like the fringes of the top 25 just because everyone expected them to be in the top 25. So I think things like that really impact the way that, that things are ready for. It's like St. Bonaventure, for instance, going to feed in the non-conference. No one's going to be talking with them. 
um, in terms of in terms of NCAA tournament buzz, in, in terms of at large buzz that, that early. So uh, I think that really has a significant role in this. I also think just kind of off of your point about it not being a normal season, like it's going non conference is going to be very more, much more variable than normal. And I think you know, you're going to have teams who miss two weeks in the you know in the off season from you know contact tracing and quarantines and things like that. You're going to be dealing with you know, teams that didn't get to work with their guys all summer. Some teams are, you know, further along in that regard than others. So, you know, everyone's starting at a different point. And so I think the non-conference will be even more messy uh, than normal because of that. So I think there will be opportunities for teams to establish themselves. But I, I, I do think the conference season as a whole will wind up meaning more, particularly uh, with, with high major leagues. And that's why I think it's pivotal for conferences like the A-10, the Mountain West, the WCC to perform well enough in the non-conference that people look at those conferences strong enough to consider those data points highly uh, in tournament selection. You have your first team, all A-10. Am I okay to just read them off? So I didn't I didn't preface for the listeners, but on top of making the previews, Kevin also makes the, uh, the first team, the second team, and then the rookie team. He's kind enough to do all that for you. So you got your first team as Jalen Crutcher, Fats Russell, Jacob Gilliard, Hassan French, Trey Mitchell. Solid, solid selections there. Uh, if there's who is one player that you you think could crack that top five, and if they did crack that top five, who is the one player you think could get dropped? So I had I had my breakout player is Bones Highland, and I think he would be BC the guy Bird. that is clearly onto the in the path of being a first team all league guy eventually. Whether that's this year or next, it's going to happen. He's going to have a terrific career at VCU, and if someone's dropping from that list. It's so hard, right? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess you could argue like Golden and Gilliard kind of split the votes essentially from Richmond, but if Richmond's the best team, they're getting somebody on that team. Um, I think, you know, French is good. Like, like it is so hard to find a guy to drop. I think Fast is going to put up a bazillion shots a game, so he's going to be on the first team unless URI stinks. So, mm-hmm. you know, to me, I think URI, Fats is probably the most vulnerable in that group, but it's a really strong five. It's not like a, Oh, well, we're really shaky on this one. I think those five were pretty, you know, stood above the rest in my mind. I I also agree that I think if I had to put one as vulnerable, I'll agree with you there that it's fats because, you know, he's going to put up a bunch of shots. It's about whether he's going to be efficient. And if URI is any good, you know, if he's taken, you know, if he's averaging 20 points a game, but he's taking 20 shots to get there and they're below like seven or eight in in the conference, then I think that's where you would see a slip, but I'm I'm with you. I think that's a pretty rock solid five. And so I was thinking to myself, um, you do conference previews for every conference. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, how long have you been doing the conference previews and how much, how long does each one take you? Let's start there. All right. So I've been doing them since this will be my fifth year of conference previews. Um, crazy enough. Uh, is in terms of how long each preview takes, I would say four to five hours per conference. They wind up in the you know three thousand to forty five hundred word range, depending on the league. Yeah, yeah, um, you don't mail it in like I do. That's why I was kind of curious. Um, once I get down to like team number ten, I'm like, yeah, you don't care about Mason. LaSalle sucks. Fordham's Fordham. All right, publish. Um, <laughs> so with that question, I asked the same one last week uh, to Maddie about what is your favorite conference to write a preview about that is not a major conference. Yes. So I think the easy answer for that for me would be the the double A Mac, uh, just because okay. I'm around there i know all the teams hometown I, conference for yeah you. i get yeah. Got a good relationship with a lot of the coaches so it's a lot it's easy and i feel like i'm bringing something you know very inside that a lot of you know conferences i don't have that as much inside knowledge on yeah. that one's a lot of fun i think the missouri valley is the other one that i have a ton yes. of fun writing it's just such a good league top to bottom i always wind up like stressing out over the team i'm picking seventh and knowing i'm gonna piss off the fan base like, arch madness a lot of fun yeah. yeah yeah i love me some arch madness i i rarely miss uh any of their tournament games down in st louis i feel like that's a like a watershed kind of moment in march like when you get to that one it's like we're here you know when you see arch madness um because it's it kind of separates like the diehard fans from like the fans that are just there for the month you know people will be like you know is even guys that love UD basketball, you'd be like, oh yeah, man, I was locked into Arch Madness last night. And how many people would really know what you were talking about? So I've always said the Missouri Valley kind of separates uh, the wheat from the chaff, if you will. 
Um, but I, I always like that question because it kind of like, I only write about the A-10, so I only have experience going through our own teams. So I'm always curious, like, what other conferences have, like, little storylines or, you know, things that uh, probably wouldn't be known to outsiders. And I do know the Missouri Valley has fan bases that are very similar to the A-10. But from what you're telling me right now, and I'm bringing the podcast full circle, it sounds to me like Albany and Dayton have a good bit in common sans the state capital thing, if I'm not mistaken, regarding college basketball, right? Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, I think I think one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is like what is a college basketball town, particularly places that aren't truly like just a college town, yeah. right? Like you could, argue, you could say that like, you know, East Lansing is a college basketball town. No, it's a college town. Like Dayton to me is a college basketball town and Albany is the same where like Siena has 7,000 fans at every home game. And to put perspective on it, Siena has 3,000 students, right? Like Siena is a very small liberal arts college and they pack the place. They play in a downtown arena that's going to host March Madness and they pack it with a bunch of like 65-year-old alums. Like it's just the culture is a little bit different around basketball, even though it's a you know one bit league and there's this high expectation, I think when I have found places in Dayton is, is like this, I think, you know, we joked about Nevada earlier, but Nevada's fan base really reminded me of this. Like when you have places where people really, really care about one bid or, you know, two bid league basketball, it just, it brings me energy, man. So, you know, Dayton and Albany are definitely a lot of life. So we got to get you out here. Got to get you to a game. You got to go, man. Yeah. When, when Seattle was making a push, Two years ago, the first year Jamie, when he was the only year of Jamie and Christian at, at Siena, I was like convinced they're going to win the MAC tournament, and I was going to find my way to Dayton. I didn't care if I was taking an overnight bus. The other challenge is I always want to go for the first four and Northwestern's midterm or Northwestern's finals. So we're on a quarter system. It goes from January to March is a quarter, and our finals are usually the week of the first four, which is brutal. Yeah, that sucks. Brutal. That sucks. Absolutely. Uh, So through your time covering college basketball, I'm sure you've been to like a lot of cool venues. Like what's your favorite one that you've been to so far? This is is challenging in that I've been to- You get to to, travel to the Big Ten, so you get kind of the cream of the crop. I get to travel a lot, especially with women's basketball. So I've gotten to like see history, even in places that haven't been packed. Like I went to Cameron this past year with a women's basketball team going to Duke. I went to Michigan State. I went to Minnesota at the barn. So uh, I think Assembly Hall is the coolest place for me in terms of just a gym I've been to. I thought it was cooler than Cameron, honestly. Like it just breathed history. And when you walk in and like the seats go like straight up to the ceiling and there's like no, that the the angle is like 90 degrees up. I thought Assembly Hall was unbelievable. Um, Yeah, I think I, I, but I will say this, one of my favorite mid-major environments that no one talks about, you go to a Loyola Chicago game. And they pack the place like they have a few times, like the Nevada game that they had there, um, which is like a, you know, it was a Sweet 16 rematch. I was at that game. You were. I, I was. That. Yeah, that was my first game ever at Loyola. Um, that place gets so loud, man. It's unbelievable. Well, yeah, because like for I think I actually came on this show and told people about it. I was like, it's it's kind of. It's like a high school gym with lower ceilings. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm not like shitting on Loyola. I'm simply saying that don't expect UD Arena. And and I, I made this comparison for the listeners that may have not been there before. You get off the train at Loyola. You walk about 30 yards. You make a right. You walk past the cafeteria and you're quite literally in the arena off the L train. Like it's it's so small and it's so abrupt. I remember I was watching. It was a seven o'clock game on whatever that was. It was a weeknight. And I remember I was watching students like eat their dinner as someone was taking my ticket. And I was just kind of like for someone that has to walk like a mile through a parking lot in Dayton, Ohio, it was very jarring to me because I was just like, it doesn't feel like I'm about to walk into a big time college basketball game. But sure enough, I mean, that game was on like national television that night. It was like a really big game, you know? No, it was it's fantastic. It, it's great. They have, they have a Raising Canes across the street that I I go to after every game. It's it's fantastic. Fantastic place to watch a game. It's so loud. Like you said, the, the roof is so low. But like the finishes with the scoreboards are great. You know, they often stick me literally like right next to like center court, right like next to like the radio guy, which is fantastic. They treat me well there. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 an unbelievable spot to watch a game. I think anyone in the uh, the Midwest like try to find a ticket to like a UNI Loyola game. 
because that those games are just unbelievable matchups. I was at that one this year, and it was uh, AJ Green had a buzzer beater sent it overtime. Highly recommend a trip to trip to Loyola Chicago. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I can vouch for that too. Like I said, just don't expect UD Arena people because it's not the same thing. Um, wrapping up the hour segment with Kevin Sweeney from cbbcentral.com. You can check out his work right there at that web address any old time that you want. Uh, Kevin, thanks again for coming on the program. Before I let you go, I always give my listeners uh, the chance to share their final thought. Sorry, I give my uh, guests the chance to share final thoughts with my listeners. Um, and, and I think you did just give a pretty decent final thought that, uh, you need to go check out, uh, Loyola Chicago, but anything else to add before we let you go for the evening? No, not really. No significant final thoughts. I appreciate you. Uh, you guys have me. I know it's uh, been fun to watch your growth with your show, especially this past year. And so, uh, privileged to be a guest, even if I'm following up three man weave, as I tend to do with my previews as well. <laughs> no it's it's always uh just good to, like i said give a different perspective and there's a lot of different a10 previews out there so you know we got to tackle them all so that we give you guys some good pub and um we always cross pollinate the good uh, podcasts of college basketball out there right um drew you are not exempt from final thoughts as you know so uh, my final thoughts of the evening are that i'm really starting to feel like college basketball is around the corner with uh the schedule announcement today it's real it was kind of the first like oh it's not as far off as i thought like would you say 42 days 41 from when this is going to be published so it's going to be here before we know it and uh, we're really going to start ratcheting up the content here soon i would imagine so uh stay tuned and appreciate everybody for listening and kevin thank you for coming on yep you heard him right 41 days from the time of this publishing we're gonna have some college basketball i'm throwing a song on to take you out tonight because we just don't have any sponsors on yet that's the beauty of having an independent podcast i'm just gonna put a a nice song on here that's gonna take everybody out in the right mood and i'm going to remind you right now that we're going to do rewind wednesdays where we republish some of our interviews from the past season and then of course new episodes of talking out loud you can expect every thursday heading into the college basketball season on november 25th and we know now beauty flyers will open up against wichita state in south dakota late 9 30 start i'm gonna repeat that about 10 times before we get to november 25th i'm sully for drew and kevin thanks for listening to the program we'll catch you next thursday remember two things drew tell them what are the two things wear red be loud you got it. See ya. Grenade, I laughed at all his words. I thought he was a bitter man. He spoke of women's ways. The trap you'd and the use you before you even know. For love is blind and you're far too kind. Don't ever let it show.
saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big.